We are returning for a second time uh, to uh, this uh, 17th chapter in the Gospel of John. And as I told you previously, it really is an unparalleled portion of Scripture. Uh, we have the tremendous privilege of uh, approaching with Christ the very throne room of God and uh, to hear our uh, Lord Jesus address His Father in this very long prayer. I told you also last time, this is the real Lord's Prayer here in John 17, the one that's in Matthew 6, which is commonly referred to as the Lord's uh, Prayer, is really the disciples' prayer. Uh, Jesus would not have prayed that prayer in uh, Matthew 6 because it included asking for forgiveness of sin, and that's something he wouldn't do because he was sinless. So here in uh, chapter 17, this is the true Lord's Prayer, and and this really, I think, is a a model uh, of uh, an example of the Lord's intercessory work for us as our great high priest, as our mediator between us as believers and God. This is the kind of prayer that the Lord continually prays for us as our defender and our mediator, our intercessor, the one who, who stands uh, at the right hand of God, defending us from all accusations, uh, pleading our cases that we're before the Father because our sins have been paid for in full uh, by His sacrifice through His uh, shed blood. Now, there is a lot of material. Uh, I kind of referenced that, I think, last time. There's a lot of material in this portion of Scripture it really deserves careful attention. Uh, we could probably, again, spend the entirety of our life and just begin to touch the edges uh, of the depth of the truth contained in the chapter. You remember the context uh, of uh, chapter 17? The context began back in chapter 13. It's the very last night that the Lord would spend with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. He's taught them many wonderful truths and has encouraged their hearts because he loves them, and they are distraught over the fact that he's leaving. And many times uh, through the Lord's prayer, many times through the Lord's ministry, he had told his followers that the Father had sent him. uh, John refers to Jesus being sent about 41 times, uh, much more than any of the other gospel accounts. Uh, The fact that he has been sent means that he has come from eternity into time, uh, from from glory to the earth. And, And throughout this prayer, there are many references likewise with Phrases either you sent me or you sent me into the world uh, some six or seven times. But, but now it's time for him to return in just a few short hours. In just a few short hours, his 33 years of life living sinlessly in this world is going to come to an end. He's going to die as the perfect substitute in the place of those who believe upon him. He's going to die as the perfect substitute. He's going to rise from the dead. Thereby, his resurrection, God declares us just, we who have repented and placed our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to go back to heaven and mediate for his people, again, whom he has provided salvation for. Now, by the time we get to chapter 17, we're really past midnight. Again, the evening started on Thursday. We're past midnight. We're very early in the hours of a Friday morning. The Lord has left with his disciples that upper room that they started the evening in. They've made their way across the the city of Jerusalem, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where the Lord is going to be arrested. But the Lord is still teaching them. He's still teaching the disciples because he loves them. He's still trying to encourage their hearts. And I told you that he could have prayed this prayer silently, but he chose this 17th chapter. He chose to pray this prayer openly and audibly because he wants the disciples and he wants us to hear this prayer. He wants the person of the Holy Spirit, again, through Um, the the pen of John, John, the Holy Spirit wants this recorded so that we might know what it says. We might know the wonderful things that are contained uh, in this text. Uh, Again, the immense love of both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that they have for us. 
And when he, the Lord Jesus, begins to pray this prayer, uh, the cross is in full view. Again, he's literally just a few hours from his arrest, then his crucifixion later on Friday afternoon. And these five verses, excuse me, begin with a prayer he prays for himself. He's asking the Father to glorify him in the cross so that he might glorify the Father. He's asking the Father to restore to him the glory that he had with him in eternity. Look down there at verse 5. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's a tremendous prayer. And as many people have noted throughout the years, the, uh, from, from the world's perspective, the cross is kind of an unlikely place to find glory. From the world's perspective, the cross is a place of shame and humiliation, uh, the most excruciating form of pain and punishment, the most vile form of execution known to man. But it's at the cross where God's glory is going to be supremely manifested. And the idea of manifesting God's glory is really to put God on display. To put God on display so that others might see Him properly, that others might see Him more clearly. That those in the world might see exactly how marvelous He is. Therefore, to display the glory of God is to make Him look great as He truly is. And nothing really magnifies God more than the cross. For a number of reasons, I'll just give you a few. First, at the cross... The glory of God is put on display because it displays both his power and his wisdom. God's glory is put on display at the cross because it displays his power and his wisdom. Remember back in Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul said something like that also to the Romans at the beginning of the book. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, right? It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first and to the Greek. So it's the, at the cross where the glory of God is displayed as God displays his wisdom. Because at the cross, God removes all human works from the equation of salvation. He removes all human works from salvation. <clears throat> every religious system in this world, I've told you this many times, every religious system in this world, except for biblical Christianity, has mixed into it some place uh, part of human effort, human works, uh, human uh, merit. And all of those things are trying to gain your own right standing before God in that worldly system of human false religions those bring glory to man and rob glory from God. But alone, the cross brings glory to God because it displays his wisdom and it displays his power. Because everybody comes to the cross on an equal playing field, on an equal level. Everybody comes to the cross absolutely guilty as sinners with nothing that we can do to save ourselves. So if salvation is going to come to man, then God is going to get all the glory. And the gospel 
puts again uh, uh, the omnipotence, the, 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 the power of God on display because it demonstrates his power to save sinners. To give sinners eternal life. Because it's the gospel that points to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and it's the gospel that points to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's why Satan relentlessly attacks the message of the cross. That's why he, Satan relentlessly attacks the cross. Uh, sometimes it's overtly, sometimes it's with great subtly. One of his favorite methods is to try to blend a little bit of human works with Christ's death, again, in an attempt to delude the glory of God with really an attempt to thwart the salvation of men because Jesus Christ plus anything else is heresy. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone. And it's the cross that brings glory to God. Again, we've just sung about it all morning. It's the cross that brings glory to God because it demonstrates His sovereignty, His absolute supreme sovereignty. It's at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where God's sovereignty is on display and His choice of sinners to fulfill all the Old Testament prophetic details concerning Christ's death. You might remember if you read in the New Testament, Matthew uh, 26, verse 5, the Jewish religious leaders did not want to crucify Jesus during the Passover because they feared <clears throat> the crowds might go into a riot. But that's exactly what they did. These sinners, they carried out the exact plans and purposes of God because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover. He is the Passover, God's Passover lamb, whose blood applied in faith would protect from God's judgment. So in God's sovereignty, he overruled the wickedness of men, and he sacrificed Christ during the Passover in spite of the wicked plans of wicked men. His power demonstrated over them. He uses them to fulfill his plans and purposes. You might also remember the Roman soldiers at the cross. They divided the garments of Christ uh, amongst them. They uh, cast lots for his tunic. It's exactly what Psalm 22, verse 18 predicted would happen. You might also remember that the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two criminals on either side of uh, Jesus, but they didn't break his legs in order to fulfill the Scripture. That's Psalm 34, verse 20. He was crucified, and then he was uh, uh, laid in a tomb of a rich man. That is exactly what Isaiah 53, verse 9 prophesied. So again, over and over again, and you see in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it glorifies God as uh, Father uh, and glorifies God the Father as the sovereign overall because he's in charge of all the events that take place there. The third issue that comes to the forefront when you think about the cross and glorifying God the Father and putting it on display is it displays his holiness and his justice. God's holiness and justice. Somebody would ask the question, well, why can't we just say to God, I'm sorry when I sin, and why can't God just say, it's okay, you're forgiven? And the reason God can't do that is because he's absolutely holy. He's absolutely just. The legal penalty for rebellion, the legal penalty for sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay that penalty. And if God did not uh, impose the legal demands for sin, then he would be like a lot of human judges. He would be unjust. And therefore, if he was unjust, he wouldn't be God at all. But again, our God in heaven, he's the absolute holy one. He decreed that the wages of sin is death, which means eternal separation from him in hell, eternal death, physical and eternal. 
And on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he being the most unique person ever walked the planet, the God-man, he bore that awful penalty for every sinner who would repent and believe and trust upon him. That's how God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him, as Paul says in Romans 3, verse 26. And number four, the cross glorifies the Father by putting his love on display. Puts on, the attribute, puts on display the attributes of God, his love, his mercy, his grace. God doesn't display his love to good people because there are what? There are no good people. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good, not even one, Paul says. God puts his love and his mercy and his grace on display to the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly, Romans uh, 4, verse 5. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross glorifies the attributes of God, his mercy, his love, his grace, his power, his sovereignty, his wisdom. Now the entire ministry of Christ in his life was, the entire point was to glorify the Father. He wanted to come to the world, he because the Father sent him. He wanted to accomplish all the work that he has been given by the Father to do. But most visibly, when it comes to the events of the cross, that's where God is most glorified, or God is glorified the most, by the events of the cross that are upcoming. Again, Jesus prays, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He wants, the, the Lord Jesus, he wants the Father to glorify them both at the cross. It's a, an acknowledgement, I think, of the difficulty of the cross that's upcoming, but it's also another affirmation of the deity of Christ. Jesus asking the Father to glorify him with the eternal glory that he shared with the Father before time began, which means Jesus is an eternal being. And again, that request there in verse 5 is another demonstration of the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the full equality of with the Father that the Son possesses. As Jesus said in John 10 and 30, I and the Father are one. And equality with God, uh, uh, God is the God who doesn't share his glory with any creature, with any creation. Uh, Isaiah says that, God through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 8, Isaiah 48, 11. So again, just as one verse pointing again, as the New Testament does repeatedly over and over again, that Jesus is no created being, but he's exactly who he claimed to be, exactly who the New Testament proclaims him to be. He's God come in the flesh. That's why Jesus can boldly make the claim in John 5, verse 23, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is going to be glorified on the cross. Jesus is going to bring glory to the Father on the cross. He's going to bring the greatest glory to the Father by offering himself on the cross as the supreme sacrifice of himself for the redeemed, for the lost, whom God will save. Now, last time we just worked our way through um, uh, the first verse. So let's just start at the top, as I like to do, and kind of work back through quickly as we start moving on uh, in the text. John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. I told you last time, that's the greatest hour in human history. It's the greatest hour of human history. It's the predetermined hour. 
It's the most crucial, most momentous hour since the beginning of the world. It's the hour that determines everything. The hour that all the Old Testament prophets look forward to, the hour apart from which there can be no forgiveness of sin, no reconciliation apart from this hour. The hour that if our Lord would have said no to, then God would have to pour out his wrath upon us for our sin for all eternity. Because all men apart from this hour and the saving elements of this hour are under the eternal wrath of God, doomed, eternally damned. It is this hour for which God the Father would have never allowed his son to endure if there had been any other way. But there is no other way for the world to have their sins forgiven, no other way to be reconciled unto God. And again, apart from this hour, uh, the world, uh, uh, those who refuse to uh, repent and place their faith in Christ, they are eternally condemned. Eternally condemned, they will be finally judged. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ will return, and next time he returns, he comes in judgment. So again, this specific hour was designated before the foundation of the world, where God in his kindness would write down all of the names for whom this event would be effective as a sacrifice, securing their eternal salvation. Again, this hour is the turning point of human history, the most momentous hour since the beginning of time. The hour that determines everything. The hour for which Christ came into the world. For the, the hour for which he was sent into the world by the Father. John 12, verse 23, the Lord speaking, says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27 of that chapter, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came for this hour. This hour of coming at the cross is the exact reason why Christ came into the world. He says in John 12, verse 32, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So the hour that's upcoming at the, at the cross is the hour when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to complete the work again the Father had given him internally to do to be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice upon Calvary's cross. It's also the same hour that the ruler of this world, Satan, has been defeated. It's the very hour that the Lord will fulfill the prophecy back in uh, um, Genesis chapter 3 when he'll crush the serpent's head. Because after he's executed and died, he'll rise triumphantly from the grave three days later. Triumphant victory over sin, triumphant victory over death, triumphant victory over the devil. Destroying the principalities and the powers who seek to take this world to ruin. It's the hour which the enemies of Christ thought they had defeated him. And the hour that the enemies of Christ thought they defeated him turns out to be the greatest act, the greatest hour of victory for the entire world because, again, Jesus Christ conquered death. Amen? And because that reality for Christ's enemies, that hour, that resurrection, that's their final doom. The devil is an already defeated foe. Eventually he'll be cast in the lake of fire and eternally punished. That's why the Holy Spirit wanted this, this uh, a prayer recorded, because he wants to draw our attention to this hour. He wants to make sure you understand the importance of this hour. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
Now again, with the time of the Lord's death at hand, he's acknowledging that, the Lord is acknowledging that, and Jesus is asking the Father to support him through the events of the cross, enable him to complete the work the Father had given him to do, to carry out uh, the events of the cross and to carry him through the cross, again, to allow Christ to put the Father's attributes on display so that men might be drawn to the Father. Again, at the cross where God's holiness, God's justice, God's mercy, God's uh, faithfulness, God's love is on full display for all the world to see. And the Son is asking the Father to carry him through the events of the cross, the events of the grave, the triumph of the resurrection, uh, completing the work that the Father has given him to do, then the, uh, the ascension of the Lord, him being caught up into heaven where he sits now, now presently at the right hand of the Father, highly exalted, having been given by the Father a name that is above every name. That's the request. That's the request of Christ here at, in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, verse 2, even as you have given authority or given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. The word is sarks. Uh, uh, all flesh is in the New American Standard updated version. Uh, the older version says all mankind. Uh, you gave him authority over all humanity. In the New English translation, NIV says you granted him authority over all the people. That's the idea. You've granted him authority all flesh, over all, all humanity, over all people. It's kind of an interesting statement just on the surface and somewhat of a remarkable statement since the Lord Jesus Christ himself is about to be given over by the Jewish authorities and the high priest to the hands of the Romans which are going to execute him. But the truth is, the Father has given to Christ all authority. Authority over all flesh, authority over all mankind. Authority granted to him by the Father, made possible again through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that although he will submit himself to his captors, although he will allow himself to be uh, nailed to the cross by the hands of wicked men, the reality is Jesus Christ is in charge of all these events. He's the authority here. Remember what Pilate said? Don't you know I could stop? And Jesus said, you have no power over me unless it's been granted to you. You need to get a proper perspective. Jesus Christ, God the Father, are the ones that are orchestrating this event. And Peter acknowledges that event. You, you remember that reality over in Acts chapter 2. Speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 2, verse 23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It's true, godless men murdered Christ. But again, in God's sovereignty, as part of his predetermined plan, his eternal plan, his prearranged plan that this event would take place. Christ would be sent into the world. He would die for the sins of those who would believe upon him. And therefore, giving Christ the right to grant eternal life to those who would repent and believe. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh or over all mankind. Now look there very carefully. It's in the past tense. You gave. Right? You gave him. So that says that the authority that has been given to him is not just after the cross and after the resurrection, after his ascension to the, to the throne of heaven, but it's something, an authority that already belongs to him. Authority that belongs to the person of Christ because Jesus is by fact the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is by fact the head over all the earth. He is the second Adam. 
exactly what the angels proclaimed at his birth. Uh, the hymn uh, uh, writer Isaac Watt uh, kind of adapts the uh, Watts adapts the angel song. He says, joy to the world. Who's come? The Lord has come, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let the earth receive her king. That's who Jesus Christ is. He's not just some baby lying there in a manger. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord. He is the king. Even as you have given, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, Again, that authority, that all authority that Christ has, all flesh, really that extends over the entire creation. And you might remember that, that Jesus at the end of the book of Matthew makes that declaration that all authority belongs to him in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, verse 18. In John chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus declares the authority that has been given him by the Father. He has the authority to judge all mankind. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, you're familiar with Jesus' fact that he demonstrated that authority in a multitude of ways, a variety of different times, his teaching. People stood amazed at his teaching and said, look, we've never heard anybody speak like this man speaks because he speaks with authority. His divine healings demonstrated his authority, his authority over sickness, his authority over the physical realm. His power and his authority over the spiritual realm is seen by the fact that he cast out demons. His power over the natural realm seen in the fact that he calmed the sea, walked on the water, he created food. His power and authority demonstrated in the fact that he violated Jewish customs. He cleansed the temple. He, he forgives sins. He offers salvation in, in his own name. He receives worship. He demonstrates all authority. The authority that rightfully belongs to him. In fact, again, his own sacrificial death was under his own authority. John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again, verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. He has authority in his own death. He has authority to, to bestow eternal life upon whom he chooses to give eternal life. John six thirty nine. This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise him up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You gave him authority, Christ says. You, speaking to the Father, you gave me authority over all flesh, over all mankind. Universal, cross-the-board statement. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the ruler of the destinies of all men and women. J.C. Ryle aptly says the key of heavens are in Christ's hand and salvation of every soul of mankind is at his disposal. I've said this to you a hundred times through the study of the book of John. You better get the person of Jesus Christ correct because your eternal destiny depends upon it. You better get him right. You better figure him out biblically. Not who the world says he is, not who the Christian culture says he is, but who does the Bible say he is? He's the one with all authority. He's the one who's the Lord over the world. He's the one who's the Lord over the the race of mankind who are unable to save themselves because of the corrupting power of sin. 
Men spiritually dead, men unable to respond to God, men unable to accomplish anything for their own salvation, naturally wicked in rebellion and opposition to God. And the only way that men can receive eternal life is through God's unmerited gift of grace, freely given through the person of Jesus Christ. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind. It's clear, though, that the redemption that Christ is going to win is applied to those only who've been given, only those who've been chosen by Father, by the Father. Again, look what it says. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. To all whom you have given. That, re- that phrase is repeated a number of times in the 17th chapter of the Lord's high priestly prayer. Now, it's very true that the Father has given authority to the Son to give eternal life to those who listen, to those who believe. We got that one right, John 3, 16. John 1, verse 12. That's true, but that's not the emphasis here. Uh, again, look very closely at what Christ says. You, you, have, or you gave him authority over all flesh to all whom you have given him. He may give eternal life. Jesus says he's been given authority to give eternal life to a select group of people God the Father has chosen. To whom all you, again, you the Father, have given me, given him, that he may give eternal life. That's God's sovereign choice. It's God's sovereign choice to give eternal life to those whom he chooses to give eternal life. God's electing love... He sovereignly chooses certain people to belong to his son, to receive salvation. Again, it's a doctrine we've spoken about many times through our study in John. It's the doctrine that men hate. The doctrine of sovereign election. To whom all you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, I'm not going to go into great depth about this, but you understand there's a few people who would come and argue, well, no, that would never happen. That's not what the Bible says because God would never violate man's so-called, open quote, free will, close quote. And when people who argue that, they argue that really from their own opinion, they don't argue that from the Bible. Because the truth is no one in the universe is free in the absolute sense. No one in the entire universe is free in the absolute sense of the word that we would think as freedom to do whatever they want to do. No one. I think a better way to look at this whole issue is to acknowledge the fact that no one in the entire universe is free to do contrary to their nature. That's a better way to look at it. No one, not even God. God can never do anything contrary to his nature. Our God is a God who's holy, therefore he can never sin because it's contrary to his nature. Likewise, men, all men, are sinners. Men are dead in trespasses and sins. Therefore, therefore, they can never do anything that is contrary to their nature, which is sinful. Men can never do anything except continue in their nature of spiritual deadness, spiritual corruption, a rebellion against God, unable to save themselves, unable to respond to anything spiritual, unable to respond even to God's gracious call of repentance. I I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to have you just flip over a few pages and look at the book of Ephesians.
Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It's a familiar portion of Scripture, but it's an apt description of where all men stand apart from grace. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Paul says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the earth, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Who belongs to that category? Look at verse 3. The answer is there at the beginning. Who belongs to that category of by nature children of wrath? Among them we too all. It's everybody. It's the entire realm of mankind. Paul goes on in verse 4 and he says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Again, God has to work to overcome our spiritual condition, our nature, our spiritual deadness, our sin. Verse 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show his surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God, again, has to work to overcome our spiritual deadness, our natural self, our, our, our deadness, our sin. So again, if salvation is going to come to mankind, uh, Jonah 2 verse 9 says salvation is from the Lord, same God, Old Testament, same God, New Testament. If salvation is going to come to mankind, it only comes by God's grace. It's exactly what Paul says in verse 8. For by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourself is the gift of God. Not of a result of works that no one should boast. Again, back in John 17, Christ says, You gave him authority over all flesh to all whom you have given him. He may give eternal life. To this select group of people who are the objects of God's grace. Now go back to John. We're going to do a little bit of turning here for the next few moments. But go back to John. And that phrase there, all, all whom you have given me is a repeated phrase. It's repeated in some fashion about 17 times in John 17 alone, in Jesus' prayer. Again, more often than any of the other gospel writers. And listen to me. That, that phrase, to all whom you have given me, that phrase right there, that you may give them eternal life, that phrase really is putting the emphasis on God's grace. That's the issue behind that phrase. It's, it's emphasizing God's grace. John 5, verse 21. Jesus says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. It's God's grace. It's God's sovereign electing choice. It's his gracious work. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. To all whom you have given him. Now, when did that occur? Answer. Eternity past. Right? We've been chosen, the Bible says, in Christ before the foundation of the world. So what that does is it tells us this plan that 
Christ has been sent into the world to execute, to carry out this plan of salvation as an eternal plan. Where the Godhead purposed to save a remnant of humanity in time, although they knew that man would rebel against them, they did so in order to put on the display of the glory of God's grace. And the plan has been guaranteed by God himself, guaranteed by the promises of God. Uh, This plan of salvation, the event of salvation, is not a result of the will of man. It's not a result of the merit of man. It's not a result of the work of man. It's not based on some kind of religious activity or good intentions or efforts of men. Every aspect of our salvation is born out of the purposes, the plan, and the will of God himself. Where God, by his own will, under his own under the counsel of no one, sovereignly chooses by grace those whom are saved. He unites them with Christ. Again, he does it before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world. To all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, I had you turn a little bit too soon. I told you I was going to have you turn. Go back to Ephesians. Let me move up just a little bit, up to the top of the chapter there. Have you look at something. So let's look at this plan, this eternal plan, real quickly from a variety of different aspects. Again, this eternal plan that is carried out by the promises of God that puts the emphasis on God's grace and God's mercy. Look at verse 4 out of chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now listen, God is under obligation to save no one. How many have sinned against God? All. How many have fallen short of God's glory? All. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glory. God is under obligation to save no one. Justice is what is due. And justice for our sin, uh, the punishment for our rebellion and sin, would be eternal condemnation. That would be justice. That's right. That's fair. That's what we've earned. But again, salvation comes to men by grace alone because of God's kindness through a substitute who stood in our place, that being the person of Jesus Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen, a very straightforward reading of the text says exactly what it says. It says exactly what it says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Every modern translation says the same thing. There is no variation. He, God, chose us. Chose, the word chose comes from the Greek uh, eklegomai, means to choose, select. The, the, it's two words, ek, out, lego, means call, eklegomai, out of, call out of. That's what it means, the chosen, the elect, the called out ones. He chose us, uh, chose in a middle voice, which means that it's God by his own independent choice makes the decision. It really means because it's in the middle voice, God by his own choice 
by him cho- by himself chose not only did he choose by himself he chose for himself it's it's great and 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 the sovereignty of god our worship service is about the sovereignty of god because the text is about the sovereignty of god so it's god's sovereign choice god's total independent sovereign choice he decrees who by his will will be be the called out ones the chosen the elect the members of the body of christ he chose us in him now when did he do that look at the text again before the foundation of the world uh, the word foundation there really literally means to lay down uh, to, to lay down life was kind of the idea. So in essence, it's saying before the foundation of the world. Right? To lay down, before life was laid down. When is that? Before the foundation of the world. When was before the foundation of the world? Question, answer, eternity. Right? Eternity past. Who existed in eternity past? Answer, God, right? And God alone. God is the one who sovereignly chose to create the universe. God is the one who sovereignly chose to create the universe and all that it contains purely by his sovereign choice. By no one or nothing else outside of himself because there was no one or nothing else outside of him. He chose. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Turn over to uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We're talking about God. Let's pick that up at the end of verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, end of verse 8, God. Verse 9. Who has saved us and called us Again, it means to call, invite by name. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own power and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. Here it is, from all eternity. Prochronos Ionos, literally before time began. So when did God save us? When did God call us according to his own purpose, according to his own gracious choice? that he has granted to us in Christ Jesus. When did he do it? Before time began. Before the beginning of time. God has saved us and called us for the holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus, pro chronos ionis, from all eternity. Turn over to Titus. Titus chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those, here it is, chosen of God, eklekta, same word, picked out, chosen. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. It's the same phrase that we just read back in Second uh, Timothy 1.9. Pro chronos ionis. Literally before time began. 
before the ages began, before the beginning of time, before the world began, it says in the authorized version. So here we go. When did time begin? Answer, day one. Right, day one of creation, when God separated the light from the dark, and there was this beginning of light and dark cycles, and, and the world started to spinning. So time began on day one. Now, when did God make this promise of eternal life, this promise of redemption by God who cannot lie? When did he make this promise? Answer, long ages ago or before time began, before day one. So here's the question. To whom did God make that promise? To whom did God make this promise long ages ago or before time began? He couldn't have made it to angels because angels are not eternal. They're created in time. And God certainly couldn't have made a promise of salvation to them because we know from the Bible that angels are not the object of salvation. Perhaps God made the promise of salvation to men. Couldn't be. Because before time began, they they also were not created. So to whom did God make this promise of, of salvation? The only person who's left in eternity past, the only person who's in existence long ages before time began, the only person who's there is God. Yeah, God. He's the only one who's there. Therefore, this promise of salvation is an intratenitarian promise. It's a promise made between uh, the members of the Godhead. It's a plan between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right? Now go back to John. John 17, verse 2, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Again, when were those given by the Father to the Son who the Son would give eternal life? When is that? When were they given by the Father to the Son? All whom you have given me, they were given to him before time began. So again, they were given an eternity past. We were given an eternity past. We who are saved, right? Salvation of the elect is an event that took place before time began, and it's guaranteed by the Word of God. It's guaranteed by the Trinity and an eternal Trinitarian, inter-Trinitarian promise that the Godhead made. Why? Why do this? Why create the world? Why redeem men? The answer is because of the inter-Trinitarian love relationship that exists in the Godhead. Uh, numerous times, I just picked out a couple of them as I was writing some extra notes in. John 3 and 35, the Father loves the Son. John five twenty, the Father loves the Son. There is a love relationship between the Trinity that's an eternal love relationship. One commentator says this, he says, there was a moment in eternity where the Father determined to express his infinite and perfect love to the Son, and we can understand that there is an intertrinitarian love, the likes of which is incomprehensible and inscrutable to us. But this we know about love, it gives. At some eternal moment, the Father desired to express his perfect love for the Son, and the way he determined to express that was to give the Son a redeemed humanity as a love gift. A redeemed humanity whose purpose would be forever and ever throughout all of the eons of eternity, of eternity future, to appraise and glorify the Son and serve Him perfectly. That was the Father's love gift. To express His love, He wanted to give a redeemed humanity. The writer says, evidently, uh, angels wouldn't suffice uh, to be in heaven praising the Son because there are certain characteristics of the Son for which they could never praise Him because they'd never fallen and they'd never been, uh, never been redeemed. 
And because it's in the nature of God to be gracious, he must manifest that grace and be exalted for it forever and ever. He wanted to give a gift of love to the Son so that he, so he predetermined to do that. Not only did he predetermine to do it, but he predetermined who would make up that redeemed humanity and wrote their names down in the book of life before the world began. He said, this is the love gift I want to give you, and they will forever and ever praise and glorify your name. That's a pretty good statement. So God, out of his eternal love for the Son, determines he's going to create the universe, create the world. He's going to give him a gift, a bride, a redeemed humanity that's going to praise the Lord Jesus Christ forever. So again, God sets out to create the universe. He sets out to create the world. He creates man. The fall happens. The eternal plan, the eternal plan is now taking off in time to give his son a redeemed humanity, again, who will love, worship, adore the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Now, unfortunately, as I say often here, we all tend to be so subjective, so self-centered, so self-focused. Most of us believe the plan of salvation is primarily uh, about God saving us. That's part of it, no, no doubt. We're the beneficiaries. But the goal of redemption, the goal of election, is to give the Son a bride who, again, will forever and ever praise and honor Him. Jesus Christ really is the eternal issue in our salvation. It goes way beyond us. So again, when you start to understand salvation biblically, uh, properly, you're going to realize that God has called us as redeemed individuals into a grand affair of Him calling out of uh, this mass of corruption, all of sin, all false for the glory, God calling out of that group and saving a group because of His grace and His electing love to give to His Son a redeemed humanity because He loves His Son. And he wants his son worshipped. Go back to uh, John chapter 6. I want you to see that right there in that text. John 6 verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, right? There's the gift. There's the gift from the Father to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Drop down real quickly to verse 44. No one who comes to me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So again, it's irresistible grace that that men are saved. Irresistible grace that men come to Christ. Uh, God does the, the calling. God does the drawing. Right? We are drawn to Christ by the Father. All who are drawn to the Son are going to receive, be received by the Son and never going to be lost, never cast out. And the perfect love gift from the Father is going to be embraced by the Son, kept and preserved forever. Look back up at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me, I lose nothing. All those who have been eternally chosen, all those who have been eternally elect, all those who have been the, the recipients of God's amazing grace and love are eternally secure in Christ. Guaranteed, listen, by the eternal promises made by the Godhead. This is the will of him who sent me. All that he has given me, I lose nothing. 
Raise it up on the last day, verse 40. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him, listen, will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So again, the Father says, the Son, I want to give you a redeemed humanity that's going to praise you and honor you and worship you and love you throughout time and eternity. Uh, They're going to praise you and love you because you're going to be the one who's going to step into time. You're going to be the one who secures their salvation. You're going to step into time. You're going to take on flesh. You're going to become the Lamb of God slain for them. Their substitute to win their salvation, to win their redemption. And once that is accomplished, they will forever and ever sing, worthy is the Lamb, right? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That's the eternal plan of redemption. God chooses us in him before the foundation of the world. He writes down our names in the Lamb's Book of Life, again, before the foundation of the world. In time, the Father draws sinners to Christ. Sinners respond to the call of God. They come to Christ as a gift of God's love to be a redeemed humanity. And forever and ever, based on the promises of God, our eternal salvation is secure. And based on the promises of God, we don't have to worry. Did we sing that a couple times? My dear friends, God is sovereign. Stop listening to the news. Amen. Everything is to terrify you. Everything to, is, is to make your ground shake. You're secure eternally in Christ. Might be some issues, might be some bumps along the road, but our eternal, eternal salvation is secure, amen? It's appointed a man who wants to die, then comes judgment, not for us, because there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't go to bed at night and rest. The world is going to do what the world does. And God does what he does because he's the sovereign. He's the ruler. Now, I know I keep having you flip back and forth, but flip again. (laughs) Back to the 17th chapter. Worthy is the lamb. It's about us, but it's not about us. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, to whom, that to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Again, just as we work our way through the remainder of the chapter, we're, we're going to see there's more to the love story. It, really, it plays out in the 17th chapter. Tremendous. Look at verse 5. Uh, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to them whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Drop down to verse 24. Again, Jesus is saying that believers this, are this gift from the Father given out of his love for the purpose of glorifying the Lord Jesus. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for. Here it is. You loved me before the foundation of the world. We're caught up in a story much bigger than ourselves. And all of that's going to play out again as we work our way through this chapter. But let me finish verse 2 here. Let me get to this last phrase. To all whom you have given, to all that, uh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Boy, there's a lot to say on that issue. But this is the very reason that Jesus was appointed to sovereign, as the sovereign over all mankind. So he could give to us eternal life. He could give to those who had been chosen, those who had been given by the Father to him, eternal life. 
And again, as we work our way through the text, there's going to be a lot more to say on this issue of eternal life. But obviously, eternal life gives us the power to prevail over death and judgment. It gives us the power to prevail uh, and to live eternally. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not what? Perish. The entire world is perishing. Apart from Christ, the entire world is perishing, but you might have eternal life. God's sovereign. And the reason that God gives His people, Christ's people, uh, uh, the ability to live forever, uh, He's given us that gift of life that frees us from the deadly curse of God's judgment and wrath uh, because of our sin, because Christ took our place. That's why John the Baptist preached way back in the beginning of the book, John chapter 3, verse 36, that a lack of eternal life belongs to those who are perishing. He who, John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. People are stupidly indifferent to the matters of eternity, caught up in all the affairs of the world that is perishing. And apart from Christ, you are under the wrath of God. Jesus said to the one who does receive eternal life, John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus offering the gospel to the the Samaritan woman. He he emphasizes eternal life as refreshing. Eternal life has a life-giving power of God at work within us. Uh, John 4 and 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, uh, but the water that I, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then finally, to receive eternal life is to participate in a great future day of the resurrection of the life, right? A resurrection of life. John 6 and 40, I read it earlier for this Uh, is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of death. For those who have Christ, who have repented, they will be raised to a resurrection of life, eternal life. That that phrase appears 17 times in in John's Gospel. And eternal life again comes to us by grace, God's grace through the person of Jesus Christ, receiving him by faith again as the only atonement for sin that's why jesus said back in john three fourteen, as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so next word must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes upon him would have eternal life again eternal life is not something we uh, earn it's not something we achieve it's something we receive by god's kindness his grace freely as a gift And more than just quantity of life, the real focus of the New Testament of eternal life is quality of life. That's why Paul says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass, behold, new things come. And once we understand the meaning of eternal life, and only once we understand the meaning of life, are you going to understand why you're here in this world, what you've been made for Jesus is going to explain that in verse 3. Look very quickly. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what every man and woman in this world has been made for, to know God, to know the Father in heaven. 
the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lord willing, we'll pick it up from that point next time.